you haven't done so already, grab a copy of God's Word and let's turn to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew chapter 12, verse 33 to 37 today. And if you're using a pew Bible, you can find that on page 817. There is an idiom we sometimes use to describe something shocking, uh, perhaps a, a narrow path suddenly opens up into a vast, beautiful landscape. Uh, perhaps you turn a corner downtown and you discover a great piece of, of towering architecture. Or maybe it's something you hear, like when I was about to run from my dad's shot back to the house and a storm cloud thundered so loudly I, I froze. We say things like, it stopped me dead in my tracks. We find ourselves so overwhelmed by the occasion that we can't help but stop and reflect. And I felt that way the first time I came across the passage we're, coming, we're covering today. And I feel that way still every time I read this passage in Matthew. Jesus says, I tell you... On the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. Consider the plethora of words you speak every day. Consider the words you write or email or text. Consider the conversations or the debates that you engage What's the big deal about our words? According to Jesus, our words indicate the state of our heart. And if that's true, it's enough to stop us all dead in our tracks. When we stand before our Lord Jesus, what is it that our words will reveal about us and our deepest treasures? Listen to the way Jesus puts it, starting in verse 33. We'll wait for that. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak, for by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What's going on when Jesus says these things? If you glance back to verse 22, Jesus has healed a demon-oppressed man, 
According to verse 28, Jesus is God's long-awaited Messiah. He has poured out the blessings of the Holy Spirit. He's driving evil away. He's, he's bringing the kingdom of God. But some Pharisees have refused to admit this. As Trey mentioned last Sunday, they, they have this bias against Jesus even when all of the evidence is pointing to Jesus being God's promised Savior, they suppress that truth, and even worse, they attribute evil to Jesus. They claim that he performs these miracles by the power of Satan. So with their words, they're not honoring Jesus. And with their words, they are turning people away from Jesus. And so Jesus addresses this problem in several steps. Well, he first shows how nonsensical their, their argument is, right? If Satan casts out Satan, his kingdom can't stand. And then he warns them about opposing the Holy Spirit, that those who do so are without forgiveness, either in this age or in the age to come. But why is that? What's at the bottom of this response by the Pharisees? Well, verses 33 to 37 help flesh that out. There's, there's no forgiveness because their words reveal the true condition of their heart before God. They have a nature that is opposed to Jesus. Let's look at this more carefully in three parts. A proverb about trees, a connection to the heart, and a warning about words. Look first at Jesus' proverb about trees. Verse 33, either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. Our neighbors have a pear tree, and several of its branches hang over our fence, and towards fall, that tree begins to drop numerous pears into our yard. Sadly, they're all bad. Since we've lived there, never once has that tree produced good fruit. Why? Because the tree itself is bad. Had someone grafted it with a good pear tree early on, perhaps there would have been more success, but the nature of that pear tree means bad fruit. And sticky feet. In an agrarian society of Jesus' day, everyone would agree with Jesus' proverb. They experienced this in farming. Good trees make good fruit. Bad trees make bad fruit. And the way you identify a good tree or a bad tree is by looking at the fruit. Jesus had taught us the same thing back in chapter 7, verse 17. Only there it was in the context of, of us discerning false teachers. He said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them, that is, these false teachers, by their fruits." Jesus makes a similar point here, but he's applying it directly now to his encounter with the Pharisees. He's giving them a picture to consider in light of his own ministry and their observations about his ministry. If you determine the nature of a tree by its fruit, well then look at the good fruit 
of Jesus and recognize that his tree is good. But don't look at the good fruit of Jesus' life and call him a bad tree and say that he's of the evil one. That's not being honest with the evidence. A more honest assessment would connect the good fruit of Jesus' ministry to his good nature. It would also connect the bad fruit of the Pharisees to their bad nature. Jesus makes this explicit in verses 34 and 35. That's where we find Jesus' connection to the heart. His connection to the heart. He doesn't, he doesn't keep this proverb in the abstract. He, he brings it home. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. So what's the connection? In the same way, a tree produces fruit, the heart produces words. The Bible will often refer to our innermost person as as the heart. And when used this way, some have described the heart as the causal core of our personhood. Or the control center for life. Our thoughts, words, actions, reactions, all of them grow out of our heart. And depending on its moral and spiritual condition, the heart determines whether we live in ways that please God or live in ways that displease God. And what Jesus is saying here is that he knows the Pharisees have a heart that's evil. And anyone can discern that by the words that they speak. For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So in the same way that you discern a bad tree by its bad fruit, the Pharisees are evil in heart because their words are evil. So Jesus is tracing the fruit of their lives to the root. And that's why he calls them a brood of vipers. A brood has to do with offspring... And vipers are related to serpents, which is significant in a context where the Pharisees just accused Jesus of being of Satan. Satan was known as a crafty serpent who spreads lies. And Jesus is saying that by the way these Pharisees are talking, he can tell what family they belong to. They resemble their father, that ancient serpent called Satan. The fruit of their words reveal the nature of their heart. They don't have a heart that treasures good, but a heart that treasures evil. I mean, just think about it. Step back for a minute. Uh, Think about where we've been to this point in Matthew's gospel. Jesus offers forgiveness to the paralytic, and then he heals them. He heals him to prove that he has the power to do so. And the Pharisees say, this man is is blaspheming. Jesus displays mercy by eating with sinners and calling them to himself. And the Pharisees scoff at him for eating with such people. Jesus shows compassion to the people, casting out the demons. And the Pharisees say, he casts out these demons by the prince of demons. 
Jesus provides for the hungry and he heals the broken on the Sabbath. He fulfills the law by doing good. And the Pharisees despise this and they plot evil. They they go out and try to destroy him. So when you step back and you look at the trees, what can we say about Jesus? Truly, he is the one who is gentle and lowly in heart. You look at his life, he is the one that's truly good and compassionate and full of of mercy. You listen to his teaching, he's the one whose heart is set on the truth of God's word. What can we say about the Pharisees? Well, they're opposing all that's good. They're not concerned about mercy. They're not concerned with, with, with doing good. Even after Jesus says, hey, go look this up in the scriptures. They don't do it. They don't want it. Consistently, their words are, are pushing people away from Jesus instead of drawing people to Jesus. And that outward fruit demonstrates that they are evil in heart. They are evil at the root. Even when the, the other people in town are saying, could this be the son of David? They're saying, no way. He's of Satan. This is revealing that they are evil at the root. Which then leads to Jesus' warning about words. In in verse 36, Jesus says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. What does Jesus mean by every careless word? We hear careless and we think Jesus, you know, Jesus means words spoken casually without, without giving them much attention. But, but the context shows us here the Pharisees know exactly what they're saying. They're giving plenty of attention to their words. R.T. France describes them as words purporting to be a defense of God's truth, but all the time working against his saving purpose. Words purporting to be a defense of God's truth, but all the time working against his saving purpose. Perhaps we're better served here by the New English translations, every worthless word, or the NIV's every empty word. They are words that show contempt for the truth. Contempt for the truth that is revealed in Jesus. Words that refuse to acknowledge Jesus' lordship. Words that, that do not honor Christ. And the other thing that's important to consider is Jesus' use of justification here. By your words, you will be justified. Whoa. I thought that it's by faith that one is justified. At least that's the way Paul puts it, right? In Romans chapter 3, verse 28. Normally, when we talk about justification, we mean God's legal declaration the moment that we trust in Jesus. Since you have been justified with Christ, therefore you have peace with God. The moment we trust in Jesus, we are justified. God takes away our sins, right? And he imputes to us Christ's righteousness. In that moment, we are right before God and have peace with God. But here, Jesus says, by your words, 
you will be justified. And he pushes that justification to the future judgment. So is Jesus' use of justification contrary to Paul? No, they fit together in that one justification is the public display of the other. Sometimes to justify refers to being shown to be righteous or proven to be righteous. And in this case, the good works or the good words that we speak, like we're seeing here, are the inevitable external badge of internal justifying faith. Those are Greg Beale's words. They're the inevitable external badge of internal justifying faith. So theologians... Uh, John Owen, Francis Turretin, Jonathan Edwards, and and the like, they they would distinguish declared justification from manifested justification. Declared justification is when God declares a sinner righteous the moment he trusts in Jesus. Manifested justification speaks to God giving proof that a person is righteous by their good works. So their works become the necessary evidence that you're real. James 2 does something similar, but he sets that manifested justification within a person's lifetime. So it occurs when Abraham's faith works or when Rahab's faith works. It's James chapter 2. But usually when the Bible's speaking of this Manifested justification, it puts it to the future, pushes it to the future judgment, like Jesus does here. So, what is Jesus saying then? He's saying that at final judgment, our words will demonstrate whether we truly belong to Jesus or not. Our words will evidence whether we had justifying faith or not. To use the words of the Reformed tradition, we're justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that remains alone. Justifying faith produces good works. It produces good words. Put it this way. Those who know what it means to be justified by faith alone, they don't speak about Jesus the way the Pharisees are. Those who are justified by faith Know who Jesus is, that He is gentle and lowly in heart. That He is the one who has come to their rescue. He has come down from heaven and and taken on the sins of the world that that He might take them away from us. They know how God made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. They know that in Him we find forgiveness and we find freedom from sin. We find fellowship with God. We find every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, including a new nature and a new heart with new treasures. And from that treasure, we no longer dishonor Jesus. We love Jesus. We praise Jesus. And we draw other people to Jesus with our words. We want everyone to know Jesus. We want our words to help people see Him and trust in Him. 
And even when we're, when we're in error and somebody comes in and says, hey, you're not believing this rightly about Jesus, we say, you know what? You're right. It says it right here in the Bible. We love Jesus. Let's honor Him this way. And those who push people away from Jesus when they see the truth about Jesus, well, their words will show them to be outside of Christ and condemned at the judgment. When all of this started with the Pharisees, they put Jesus in the dock and accused him of doing evil. But Jesus reveals here he's not the one in the dock, the Pharisees are. The more they speak, the more they prove themselves evil. Being good or evil hinges on whether you embrace Jesus for who he is. Jesus is the real judge here. He has exposed their true nature. He sets the terms here. And he is God's goodness and truth embodied. So what does all this mean for us? Well, the first thing it means is that we must accept that our words reflect our nature. Our words reflect our nature. We we live in a culture that often rejects this teaching. 2009, Serena Williams lost to Kim Clijsters in the women's semifinal match of the U.S. Open, but during that game... Serena said to a line judge, I'm going to take this blanking ball and shove it down your blanking throat. She later apologizes, but in doing so, says, I just felt really bad because it's like that's not who I am. In 2013, Dexter Manley played defensive end for Washington. He used a slur against Troy Aikman. Tending to be funny, later he too would apologize and say, anyone that knows me knows that's not who I am in heart or mind. Baker Mayfield, when he played college ball at Oklahoma, there was a game against Kansas in 2017 where he kept jawing at the other players, cursing the coaches, using vulgar body language. Baker would also apologize later, but in doing so they'd say, That's not who I am. And I mention these examples not to snub our noses at at these people. After all, we're news teams recording every moment of our lives. I'm sure there'd be plenty that we'd be ashamed of. I mention them only to illustrate a common assumption in our culture when it comes to words. We tend to assume that our words don't reflect who we really are. And so we, th- we say things like, I know I said that, but that's not who I really am. I know I said that, but I just spoke out of character. I know I said that, but emotions just got the best of me. I know I said that, but she made me And Jesus challenges these assumptions. He traces the fruit to the root. Word problems reveal a heart problem. 
Words disclose our nature, what we treasure in the core of our being. If your nature treasures Jesus, then your words will be good and honor Jesus and draw people to Jesus. If your nature opposes Jesus, then your words will be empty and turn people away from Jesus. So I think an important question we need to ask ourselves in a passage like this is, what do your words say about you? Doesn't James chapter 4 get at the same idea when he asks, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? Words come from the heart. So if we're going to walk out repentance and we're going to seek true change in our lives, we must go with Jesus here. We must agree with Jesus. We must believe that Jesus has a better handle on the human condition than we do. Or that pop psychology tells us today. From the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So, what do your words say about you? Just a note for parents. It's a great opportunity here to learn from Jesus how to shepherd your children. We don't shepherd them by just saying, stop saying that and start saying this. We ask more questions. Why did you say that? What's going on in your heart that led you to speak these things? Something we should also consider in our own pursuit of holiness when we say things like this. What's going on inside? In line with this same thinking, though, we must also affirm that good things will come from a new nature. Good things will come from a new nature. Yes, Jesus exposes the Pharisees as evil because their words are evil, but Jesus can also speak of those who speak good things from a good treasure, from a new heart. The good person, out of his good treasure, brings forth good. Without a new nature, we lack the moral ability to... To honor Christ with our words. But with a new nature, the Lord grants the moral ability to honor Christ with our words. The message of Christianity is not that we just become good rule followers. That we've just learned how to behave better than everybody else. That's not the message of Christianity. The message of Christianity is Jesus changed our nature. When you are united to Jesus by faith, He gives you a new heart that treasures Him and all of the goodness of God in Him. Sometimes the Bible calls it the circumcision of the heart. At other times, God refers to the heart undergoing this radical spiritual cleansing and and rebirth like in Ezekiel 36 or John chapter 3 when Jesus is telling Nicodemus he needs to be born again. Another example is God commanding light in 2 Corinthians 4, 6 to, to shine into our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And when that happens... 
You honor Christ with your words. You are a new creation. We can also see this inward change by the way Paul addresses the Christians in Rome. He says, thanks be to God. So thanks be to God. He's saying God did this by His grace. Thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed and having been set free from sin have become slaves of righteousness. So a person truly changes when God gives the heart a new moral disposition that loves God and treasures Christ and seeks to honor Christ. Returning to Jesus' Jesus' teaching here, once the root of the tree is good, then the fruit will be good also. So do you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you looked at God's revelation in the Scriptures? Have have you seen Jesus' humiliation in the the incarnation? And have you seen uh, Jesus' power to to give life? Have you seen Jesus' blood atoning for sins on the cross? Have you seen Jesus in power rising from the dead and His current present reign over all? Have you seen this and confessed, He is Lord? Beloved, that's good fruit. When you were singing earlier today all of the praises about our Lord and His saving purposes in Christ, is that coming from a heart in love with Christ? You need to give thanks for that. You didn't do that. (laughs) The grace of God did that. Thanks be to God that you have become obedient from the heart. And now you're not like these Pharisees pushing the truth about Jesus down. You are celebrating it. You're lifting your voices together. You're encouraging each other throughout the week about Christ. Give thanks for the new nature that you have in Him. At the same time, we need to learn to walk in that new nature by honoring Jesus with our words and drawing others to Jesus. What was the problem here with the Pharisees? They they looked at God's revelation in Jesus and they turned people away from Jesus with their words. Right? They, They looked at something good like healing a man on the Sabbath and they called it evil. You interact with people every day, probably, who look at Jesus and the good about Jesus or the good things that the Lord reveals in His Word and they call them evil. And this is an opportunity for you to point them to where that's coming from. A heart that's not even willing to admit what's plainly evident. Also, if these things are plainly evident to us as Christians, since God has opened our eyes, 
How much more ought we to be the ones whose mouths are full of good things? God has opened your eyes to see His revelation in Jesus. You have have read His Word. You have experienced the power of His transforming grace. You, You know His mighty deeds in the cross. From week to week, you witness Jesus working to to build up His church in love. The question now is, having seen all these things, are you using your words to honor Jesus and draw others to Him? You see, on the one hand, Christians have a new nature, a, a new treasure, and from that treasure, they can speak good things. On the other hand, we still battle the old sinful flesh. And if we're not proactive in fighting that fleshly nature, our words will not commend Jesus to people. They will push people away from Jesus. They will not represent Jesus very faithfully to others. So this is why Paul, you know, had to instruct the church in Ephesus. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths. But only as such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. That's why Paul prayed that, the, that, that his own words would be full of wisdom right, and, and salt in interacting with outsiders. That's why James 3 tells the church, The tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. The battle against the flesh rages on. The point to make here, though, isn't just get your act together, folks. That's not how we overcome worthless words. If you want a mouth full of words that honor Jesus, you need to start at the root. You need to start at the heart. What are you treasuring in your heart? The word behind treasure in verse 35 refers to a place where where something is kept for, for safekeeping. A repository for transcendent things. Matthew 6, 21, Jesus, when he's talking about money, said where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So what is filling your your heart lately. When your children hear you speak, can they tell that you treasure Jesus? If someone were to read your social media page, would they conclude that Jesus is your highest joy? What about your patterns of speech at work? Can others tell that that you have a love for Christ that surpasses all other loves? I was speaking for myself. There are times when my own complaints or, or sharp, cynical remarks do not display a heart that's full of Christ. And that's why this passage stops me dead in my tracks. We must make it our habit to put into the storehouse good things about who God is, and what God has done for us in Jesus, and what He is doing for us in Jesus now. What, what good counsel Paul gives in Philippians 4, Gary read it earlier, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, 
Whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Right? Put them in the storehouse. Store up the good treasure in the heart. And from that good treasure, you will, it will produce words that honor Jesus. So pray for the Spirit to help you treasure Jesus so that you will want others to know Him and encounter Him in the words that you speak. Little treasuring in the heart will mean little, little honoring of Jesus with our words. But the more we treasure Christ within, the more you will honor Him with your words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this word from Jesus. It is a a hard one, but one we need to hear. I thank you for making it plain to us, uh, for removing our bias against Jesus, and helping us embrace what's just plain as day, that he is the Savior, the Messiah the one who's full of all goodness and mercy. As we look to him this coming week, transform us more and more so we become like him. Like him in our thoughts. Like him in our deeds. Like him in the words we speak. And may others be drawn to Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen.